Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. There's been a lot of encouraging news about COVID-19 vaccine development in recent days. But how effective will these vaccines be if and when they are approved for mass distribution? To help answer that question, Yale School of Public Health professor David Paul Thiel and his colleagues have produced a set of detailed mathematical models aimed at estimating how different factors might affect a vaccination campaign. Those factors include the efficacy of the vaccine, the speed with which we can get people vaccinated, the amount of time it takes for the vaccine to work, the degree to which the disease continues to multiply within the population, and the number of people who agree to get vaccinated. His research is summarized in a November 19th Health Affairs article entitled Clinical Outcomes of a COVID-19 Vaccine, Implementation Over Efficacy. And this week, I spoke to him about the article for the Quillette podcast. What follows are excerpts from that conversation, which, for context, I will note took place after the announcement of test results by pharmaceutical companies Moderna and Pfizer, but before AstraZeneca announced its own results on November 23rd. Is there any recent historical precedent for such a large vaccination program happening in such a compressed period of time? Each year, there is an attempt, at least in the United States, to mount a mass vaccination campaign for influenza, but it doesn't carry nearly the urgency or the same devotion of time, effort, emotion, and political involvement as this. So, you know, I think certainly in our lifetimes, there has been nothing quite like this. I think one would have to look back all the way to smallpox vaccination for anything comparable. I found it interesting that in your paper, you were looking at, well, how does this pacing work? And I believe you had, say, 1% per day, for instance, which sounds sensible because when it's a normal influenza season, over the course of several months, they will try and vaccinate everybody who wants a vaccination. Is that really a good approximation of what's going to happen now? Are there going to be sort of these pop-up health centers in major cities where people are just going to be coming through by the thousands? Your question is very well posed. We don't know what pace will be reasonable. We thought that as a first approximation, it might be, you know, a not unreasonable thing to start with a daily rate that approximates the rate of vaccination in the United States during the very peak period of vaccination efforts each fall. And then recognizing just how uncertain that is, we conducted what modelers refer to as sensitivity analysis, where we looked at how robust our overall findings would be in the face of uncertainty surrounding that assumption. So while we started with a parameter value of a half a percent of people being vaccinated each day, something that would take 100 days to achieve 50% coverage, 200 days to achieve full coverage in the population, we then changed that variable in sensitivity analysis, running it everywhere from a tenth of a percent to 2% a day to see how robust our findings would be. And not surprisingly, it does matter. One of the things that may makes modeling something like this especially difficult, I'm guessing, is that the question of who gets the vaccine first 
or who is encouraged to get the vaccine first. It has a political aspect. I think most people I've spoken to seem to agree that frontline health professionals should be among the first to have access to the vaccine. But there was somebody on social media who made a claim that at first seemed outrageous to me. But then I was like, well, kind of makes sense. What he said was the 20 million hardest partiers in the United States should get this vaccine because realistically, these are the people who are having big super spreader events. And yet at the same time, from a moral standpoint, it seemed shocking to me because these are the people breaking the rules. Do you have any ideas that went into the modeling about who gets it first? Yes. So the model itself, our model, does not think, you know, in a very high resolution way about who should get it first. But there are a few insights that fall out of our model that are counterintuitive and do shed light on that question. The most surprising was this counterintuitive finding that a vaccine will be most effective if administered in populations that have done the best job of masking and social distancing and driving the background severity of the epidemic down as far as it can. That's quite a different view than one usually finds in most economic assessments, where the usual finding is one that says effort should be targeted where severity is greatest. And the analog to the question you're posing is perhaps effort should be targeted to the highest spreaders. Our finding is that you've got to give this vaccine a chance, a fighting chance. And the best way to give it a fighting chance is to recognize that, in fact, the vaccine will work best in the lowest severity populations. You can't push that reasoning too far. You don't want to give it to people who are at no risk. But at least our model would suggest that, in fact, giving it to the biggest super spreaders, as you said, might not, in fact, be the optimal thing to do. Since the COVID-19 epidemic began, you have seen a lot of people throwing around the term herd immunity quite liberally as well. You know, eventually enough people will get it so that they'll have the antibodies and there'll be very few people left to have the disease. Do you think that the popular understanding of this term herd immunity has maybe hurt some of the public health efforts, including perhaps efforts around eventually getting people vaccinated on the theory that, well, somebody else will get vaccinated, so I don't have to? I think that it has been devastating how poorly presented, poorly understood, and poorly managed the term herd immunity has been in the United States and around the world. Herd immunity as a method of containment of the virus does not exist. It is is a pipe dream. If herd immunity were a military strategy, it would involve permitting the enemy to so destroy your troops that it runs out of people to infect and kill. Herd immunity, if you think about it, is just a point of inflection where the pace of spread is reduced below one person for each person infected. I think it's been terrible how poorly presented it has been. It is not a strategy that translates into a public health strategy of letting people simply get infected so that we can develop immunity. It can be achieved via vaccines. The rate of vaccination needs to be incredibly high. It is our finding in this analysis that a vaccine alone will not be a magic bullet and that even with a highly effective vaccine, we will still need sustained adherence to masking, physical distancing, other mitigation practices to contain the pandemic. So even with a vaccine, don't throw away the mask. We'll get out of this faster if you give the vaccine less work to do. Herd immunity is a very long way away. When you were discussing how many people on average would get infected from one person who was already infected, sometimes that's discussed as the so-called reproduction number. What's interesting about the reproduction number is when people do figure out the herd immunity threshold, to the extent that it's valuable to talk about that, 
if you have an extremely high reproduction number disease, such as measles, the herd immunity threshold is extremely high. But if you have a very low reproduction number, such as I think was associated with MERS, which was another coronavirus, the herd immunity threshold is lower. In your paper, which I've read and I invite other people to read, you have different kinds of sensitivity analysis for reproduction numbers, I think of two down to maybe 1.2. There were some very wide estimates of the reproduction number for COVID-19 in the early stages. I think people estimated it as high as five. Do we have a good handle on what kind of number could be used for the reproduction number? Because it's an important variable in your analysis. It's a terribly important variable. And you're right. We don't have a good number. It evolves over the course of time, space, and circumstance. And yes, the effects of the vaccine will be highly dependent on the reproductive number that one assumes. Ours is a model analysis. The point of it is not necessarily to put one's finger down on a particular point estimate of that productive number, but rather to recognize that a range of different reproductive numbers are possible, that the reproductive number functions in part as a proxy for the success of public policy interventions to promote more sustained adherence to risk mitigation strategies and physical distancing and masking and hand washing. The qualitative finding is always the more important in a model-based analysis than the quantitative finding. And the qualitative finding is clear. When the reproductive number is comparatively low, the vaccines are actually capable of producing larger reductions in the number of infections and deaths and hospitalizations. And that, again, is that very counterintuitive finding. It goes against the grain of most analyses that I have conducted in the past, where I would argue that one wants to focus one's efforts where the problem is most severe. Here, we are finding that, in fact, the lower the severity of the problem, the more effective the vaccine will be. But the qualitative finding is robust across assumptions of the reproductive number ranging from 1.2, just as you said, all the way to 2.1. And that was that even a highly effective vaccine, a vaccine that is 90% or even 95% effective, even a vaccine that effective is going to be largely diminished in terms of its ability to reduce overall infections if it is not rolled out at high pace and with great coverage across the population. The heartbreaking parts of our analysis and our findings were, number one, that infrastructure will contribute at least as much as the vaccine itself to the success of a vaccination program. You often hear vaccinologists say that it isn't vaccines that save lives, it's vaccination programs that do. And the second heartbreaking insight from the analysis is that time is running out and that the longer it takes for us to invest the requisite resources and attention to the non-vaccine aspects of the operation, the production, the distribution, the scale-up, and the campaigns to promote public confidence, the more we run the risk of actually squandering the remarkable returns on the investment we have made in identifying vaccines that work. And now, a brief shout-out for another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which you can find at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You've heard me talk about Jordan's podcast before, and you know that Apple named it one of its best podcasts in 2018. But if you haven't given it a listen, let me just tick off some of the guests this guy has managed to get. Bob Saget, Malcolm Gladwell, Dennis Rodman, Mark Cuban, and the late Kobe Bryant. And if you tune in regularly, you'll know that this isn't just a parade of famous people. Jordan also finds folks you've never heard of, who just happen to have fascinating stories. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. And now, back to our Quillette podcast. 
a lot of people have focused on so-called anti-vaxxers, people who, for one reason or another, are suspicious of vaccines or who have said that they're not going to take a COVID-19 vaccine should one be available to them. But it sounds like it's actually coming sociologically from two directions. Because if you have people who won't take the vaccine, obviously that's a problem. But if you have people who see the vaccine as this magical silver bullet that saves all of us and we don't have to modify our behaviors, that's a problem too. It's hugely problematic. Just as you said, it completely undermines the efficacy of the vaccine and doesn't recognize that there is this huge distinction people who do clinical studies often make between efficacy and effectiveness. Efficacy is what you observe in a controlled clinical trial setting. Effectiveness is what you observe when you actually employ the intervention or the vaccine in the real world. And if previous vaccines are any guide, real world effectiveness will be lower than what we see in the clinical trial, in part due to exactly what you said, which is that there is a certain amount of behavioral disinhibition or compensation that will incur as people think to themselves, well, I'm now vaccinated, so I don't need to take nearly as much care. There's also the risk, of course, that people who enroll in clinical trials may be healthier than the population at large, and that doctors may not follow patients as carefully in the real world as they do when they know that a trial is being conducted. But one way or another, the effectiveness of the vaccination program is highly unlikely to be as great as the efficacy of the vaccine as identified in the clinical trial setting. Let's zero in on one factor. My understanding is that both the Moderna and Pfizer candidate vaccines are a two-dose format. There are other candidate vaccines, such as the Johnson Johnson vaccine, which my understanding is one dose. I think I've read articles that say even just when it comes to taking prescription pills, something like 30% of people don't take their prescription pills properly or don't continue taking them to the end of their regimen. Do we know how many people will report for their second dose, even if they get the first one? You're giving voice to the concern that falls under the heading loss to follow-up. It is something that one observes in all clinical settings. Do we know exactly what the loss to follow-up will be from the first to the second dose administration when we're talking about something so life-threatening, so urgent, and so well-publicized? No, I don't know. But I do know that it's a problem. And it's a problem known only, as you said, from the behavioral point of view. It's also just a problem from the logistical point of view. We are going to need, and we don't yet have, the information systems set up to properly monitor and track people to be sure that we do in fact know who got their first dose, who got their second dose, who returned, who's late, who needs to be followed up with. What are the ethics on compulsory vaccination? You're going to have to ask an ethicist. (laughs) Not going there. You say that some of the results are heartbreaking when you look at the sensitivity analysis, and there are certainly certain parts of the United States where COVID-19 prevention it doesn't seem to be front of mind for a lot of people. However, when you originally created your model, my understanding is your baseline efficacy was 50% because that was the baseline that the FDA had picked. But it must have been a pleasing surprise to see that just as your article was going to press, you had two vaccine candidates come out with very large trials that showed it at 90% plus efficacy. Did that surprise you? It did. It delighted us. And I can't imagine that it wouldn't delight anyone. It is great to have not just one, but two and potentially even three now candidates with such surprisingly strong preliminary reports of efficacy. And it's not only the efficacy reports that are so heartening. The Moderna vaccine in particular appears to be such that it will place far fewer strains on the vaccine distribution infrastructure to the extent that it can be stored at temperatures that actually exist in most doctor's offices and pharmacy refrigerators. So these are huge 
huge steps on the road to a successful vaccination program. But again, you know, I keep going back to this. Are we investing enough in the other steps, the scaled up manufacturing, the state of the art distribution and logistics, the communication programs to promote acceptance? On its own, a 90 or 95 percent efficacy says nothing about how well a vaccination program will work or how effective it will be in bringing down the state of the pandemic across the United States and elsewhere. And so my overall reaction to the news is delight. It ought to be delight, but it's also just that this isn't the beginning of the end so much as it may be the end of the beginning. Another happy surprise, although the numbers are less lopsided, but as your article was going to press, I think the latest American survey data suggested that about 50% of people indicated they were willing to take a vaccine if one were available. That apparently has since shot up to 58%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in regard to sensitivity analysis, these are nonlinear systems. That's a big jump. It's an enormous jump, and it's a very heartening one. And yes, you're right. Those numbers do seem to be improving. I don't know to what extent this is attributable to the fact that some of the most trusted scientists, at least in the United States, are beginning to express a much greater degree of optimism about the availability of an effective vaccine. When you were talking about the people who might be opposed, it isn't only the the knee-jerk anti-vax community. It was also a number of reasonable people who, I think to paraphrase what they were saying, I'll take it when Dr. Fauci says it's okay for me to take it. I might even count myself in that group, incidentally. And I think that Dr. Fauci's expressions of optimism are certainly helpful in this regard. A lot of people rightly criticized President Donald Trump because he made so many ignorant, dangerously so, statements about COVID-19. But the United States did actually invest a lot of money. I think it was called Operation Warp Speed. I don't think Pfizer took money for the development of the vaccine, but Moderna, I think, took $2.5 billion. For all the abuse that the Trump administration has rightly taken, you talk about logistics, they, at least on the upstream end, have been helpful in generating the production capacity for this vaccine. Does that surprise you? The production capacity, I'll give them credit, and they deserve credit. Operation Warp Speed, silly as its name may be, does seem to have produced its intended result, which is you know, the development of several candidates that show great promise as potential vaccines. The investment in Operation Warp Speed at this point, I think, needs to be matched with a similar investment in Operation Scale-Up Manufacturing, Scale-Up Distribution and Logistics, and Scale-Up Communication Programs to promote acceptance. There does seem to be some work on the logistics and distribution part of the effort. That's not my area of specialty, but I have read a few documents that suggest that there is some behind-the-scenes work to think about with manufacturing and distribution. But certainly with regard to logistics, the information system, systems and the communications programs. I assume that this is going to be entrusted to state, local, and even healthcare providing units. I don't know if that's true outside the United States as well, but our investment in those activities and those essential aspects of a vaccination program has been lacking to date. I was interested in what you said that it's not vaccines that save lives, it's vaccination programs. And at the end of the day, it's not going to be someone from Pfizer or Moderna who vaccinates me. It's probably going to be a nurse or a doctor. In my case, because I live in Canada, it'll probably be somebody who is accredited or dispatched by a centralized Ontario health program. How much does the fractured, not just geographically, but also the private-public distinction in the United States, how much does the fractured nature impede the rollout of these programs? 
it means that the infrastructure is not currently in place. It need not impede it if we make the investment now and making the plans now to say this is how it will be distributed universally. But certainly places with single payer systems and good infrastructure as it exists in Canada places you in an advantage in terms of not having to invest now in that infrastructure. We had your Yale his Yale Law, but your Yale colleague, Anthony Cronman, a few months back, he wrote a book about the decline in trust for expertise. You're smack in the middle of that crisis of trust. I get the sense that that phenomenon might have bottomed out in the last few months and people are starting to pull back. Do you detect that the worst of that is over and that the broad public might be coming back to appreciate the expertise of scientists? You're asking me a question that is quite far removed from my area of expertise. I'll tell you what I'm seeing on a personal basis. I don't know that this is broadly the right answer. I'm not as optimistic as it would appear you are in this regard. Here in late November 2020, there is a resurgence. Some people would call it a second wave, but certainly many jurisdictions moving closer to lockdown type arrangements. And many political leaders and public health leaders have decided to simplify the messaging and to simplify the rules and are therefore issuing broad, broad kinds of guidances that say, for example, if you step outside your house, put on a mask. There is no evidence based to support that broad a requirement, but they are doing it because they say to present a more nuanced policy would just cause greater confusion. I worry that it may sow the seeds of long-term distrust in expertise if at some point somebody were to ask the question, well, where does that come from? What justifies that? And there is justification for a lot of mask wearing, but the idea of moving toward these much broader stroke, broader brush policies in service of the simplicity of the messaging, even if it means departing from the letter of the evidence, I worry that that will ultimately undermine the credibility of the scientific community. And now a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, the online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At BetterHelp.com, you'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment using secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists. And you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 U.S. states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. There's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over 1 million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code Quillette. Just go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. We recently had on this podcast former Harvard Medical School Dean Jeffrey Flyer, who said that as terrible as this pandemic has been, it might just be a sort of dress rehearsal for something in the future that may be worse because, for instance, the next pandemic may target children 
who are, in the case of COVID-19, relatively resistant to the disease. What are your thoughts on the lessons we can draw for future pandemics? Because most experts seem to agree that this won't be the last. I hate to piggyback on that particular idea, but I do think that, you know, for the very longest time when public health experts were asked about the risk of pandemic, the stock response was it isn't a question of whether it's just a question of when. And I think that the same is true about the next pandemic. It is only a question of when. And while this one has presented us with challenges we hadn't anticipated, uh, certainly, you know, the breakdown of communication from the scientific community to the public or even, you know, the particulars of the virus itself and the fact that this one is so very easily transmitted even asymptomatically. There are other aspects, just as you said, that we are blessed not to have to be grappling with. What if it were to affect children more than adults? But, you know, one way or another, I think that this idea that we are once again, just like the generals fighting the previous war rather than the current one is something I think we're going to have to brace for. Because as I said, it's not a question of whether there will be another one, just when. David Paul Thiel, thank you so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. For those who are interested in reading more of his research, his current article in Health Affairs is called Clinical Outcomes of a COVID-19 Vaccine, Implementation Over Efficacy, with co-authors Jason Schwartz, Amy Zhang, and Rochelle Walensky. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.